sometimes you need to hit the pause button as a clinician um, and a researcher and say, hang on, this is what my underlying assumption is. We want to be evidence-based practitioners, but in fact, this is just how we should practice. Ethics is every part of every clinical decision that we make. And what it is that we do is we make lives better. Welcome to Speak Up, the Speech Pathology Australia podcast. This podcast series highlights conversations with esteemed contributors in the speech pathology space. We explore key issues in the profession in a short and easy to listen to format. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say. I'm talking today to Professor Tricia McDehabe um, from the University of Sydney about the professional development sessions she'll be running in a number of states in Australia during, during 2020. These come on the back of some, I'm sure, highly successful workshops that were held in other states in 2019. So I'll just get Tricia to tell us a little bit about where she's going and what she's going to be talking about. Thank you, Corrie. Um, so this year I have the pleasure of uh, doing workshops in Hobart, Brisbane and Perth. That's all I've got booked so far. Uh, that are to talk about childhood apraxia speech treatment. So in Hobart and Perth, I'm talking about uh, choosing the appropriate treatment, evidence-based practice in uh, speech pathology in childhood apraxia of speech and in Brisbane I'm, I'm narrowing that down to talk about rapid syllable transition treatment or REST which is the uh, treatment that we've developed here at the University of Sydney. So the, the first two are really about uh, how do you know which treatments, what filters should you as a clinician use you know, evidence-based practice is one part, but what are the theories that you should use to help yourself choose between the huge number of treatments with low evidence? So lots of treatments have okay evidence. No single treatment has enough evidence to say that you should do it with every child. So what do you choose for a three-year-old who's highly unintelligible versus an eight-year-old who is a bit disjointed? So... Hobart and Perth, we're going to sort of unpack the evidence and also um, try and do some practical work to learn a number of the different treatments. There's four Excellent. treatments in... Sorry. I was, I was just going to ask whether there are some principles that you'll be talking about when it comes to making a decision about the intervention you use. Hmm. So as, as I mentioned, the... Let's start with evidence-based practice. The treatments that have the most and best evidence, and we know that um, there's only so far published one randomised control trial. So those two treatments, REST and Nuffield, have the highest level of evidence, but it's unreplicated, it's a small group and so forth. So they're two of the treatments that are freely, readily available in Australia and easy to learn. Uh, and then we look for treatments that um, have the next levels of evidence. And if you want to think about, well, I don't want to use any of those. They don't seem appropriate for the children we've got in front of us. How do you choose beyond evidence-based practice? So that would be, do they address principles of modal learning? So this is a theoretical idea that's come 
to speech pathology in the last mm, decade and a half and should underlie any time we treat people with a motor learning problem. So not only apraxia, but dysarthria or stuttering or even voice and swallowing. Um, and, you know, lots of clinicians would know the principles of motor learning, but look at a new treatment that somebody's trying to sell you and say, does it use the principles of motor learning and how could I tell? Then um, are they trying to sell you something or um, is it, you know, is there a commercial conflict of interest here? Because if you make up a treatment and you sell all the materials, then we need to apply a higher standard of standard of filtering to that person or that product because there's a conflict of interest. It's not knowledge for the sake of knowledge or treatment for the sake of the children. It's, there's also a commercial interest there. So yeah. some commercial treatments are great, but we need to be apply another level of sensitivity to whether we use them or not. I think that's a really important point, Tricia. And some of the websites out there are so glitzy and look wonderful, um, but when you dig a little bit deeper, there's not much evidence reported on the website. Mm, mm. And Greg Loff, you know, um, yes, I talks know. about the pseudoscience, you know, uh, testimonials. There's a reason Speech Pathology Australia's Code of Ethics says we can't put testimonials on our websites. But the same goes for products and programs yeah. and, you know, a testimonial saying this cured my child of apraxia should be taken with a grain of salt. Yes, there's, some, there's a, um, a quote I've heard used and I can't even remember where it comes from anymore, but it says anecdote is not evidence. Mm, mm, yeah. And I think, I think we, the thing about apraxia and, and probably, you know, other severe communication disorders is the clinicians feel unprepared. I mean, Marianne Gomez, one of my PhD students, surveyed Australian speech pathologists and it was in IJSLP in 2018. Um, clinicians feel unprepared and we don't see, most clinicians don't see enough kids with apraxia to feel like they've got expertise. So then they're a bit scrabbling around in the dark. And really what I hope people get out of these workshops is, okay, I not, might not see a kid with apraxia for another two years, but when I do, I've got a set of principles to make some decisions on. Mm. Um, and I think that's really important because I guess it's every clinician's responsibility to make choices that are based in the evidence and I include principles for decision-making within that. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think we forget that we've got a theoretical base. You know, in the hustle and bustle of just, you know, client after client after client or student mm -hmm. or whatever we call them, um, how do you get some automaticity when each child has to be presented as an individual and you want to you want to have be automatic so that you can be fast and efficient, but this child has something way out of your league or what you don't feel like you're qualified for. So remembering we have principles, uh, EBP, ethics, and, and so forth, and then the theoretical models of neuroplasticity or principles of motor learning or whatever, 
it strikes me as we forget those things in the rush to get clients done. I think you're right. So remembering those principles and the sound grounding that we've all had in our university education is really important. Mm, mm. I think the other thing that I hope comes out of the workshops is that actually people have the skills that they need and the it's just a matter of taking a, a little bit of time for that clinical reasoning. When you do research, the kids that get recruited into the research, and it doesn't matter whose research it is, um, never exactly match the child in front of you. And we've then got to modify, you know, weigh our clinical expertise with what research literature says. And I'm hoping that the principles and the, te- the way of thinking about these kids that I talk about allows clinicians to do that in a sort of a systematic way to say, well, this child isn't the same as the literature and I have to modify what I'm doing for them, but I'm going to modify understanding the principles of motor learning and so forth, rather than I'm just going to make tweaks and hope that it works for the best. Mm. Yeah, sure. And that's why clinical expertise is one of the important parts of evidence-based practice. Yeah, Anyway, so look, the workshops in Melbourne and Adelaide covered those and the clinicians felt that they uh, got a lot out of the latter part of the day. So the first part of the day is some theory and then um, what does the evidence say? And then the last session is let's have your cases and use this principle with your cases. So I'm really hoping that clinicians when they come to the workshops will bring their cases and you know think about as we're going through the day what they would do with them and what questions they still have and so forth so trying to make it very practical as well and i'm sure that clinicians everywhere will appreciate that aspect of the workshop thanks very much for talking to me a bit about these workshops tricia Um, If you're in Hobart, you can attend in February. If you're in Brisbane, Trisha's there in March. And in Perth, she'll be around in November. So check out the details on the SPA website. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and bye for now.